Hi, this is Matthew, and together with my co-host Andrew, we produce a podcast, Still Unbelievable. Still Unbelievable started life as a response project to the podcast and book, Unbelievable, which has hosted discussions between Christians and non-Christians for almost two decades. On Still Unbelievable, we review Christian arguments and interview a variety of guests to shine a light on the darker side of Christianity, the parts that Christians prefer to ignore. So if you want to challenge the things that Christians say, and occasionally have a laugh about it too, find us in your favourite podcast provider by searching for Still Unbelievable. Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. Hey everybody, welcome to part two. I'm so glad to be continuing this conversation with Rachel and Molly from the Cheers to Leaving podcast. So welcome now to MindShift Podcast. Woo! It's yes. nice over here. <laughs> the water's warm. <laughs> no, we, we got baptized in a freezing cold river, remember? Or a lake or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, you guys didn't have heated... I don't think I've ever been baptized we were not in privileged. a heated anything. You weren't privileged. No. Well, we, we've had a great s- conversation. Yeah. Anyone who's so, been baptized in a heated baptismal, you know what? You your church had money. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, my church must have had money then, but we built the building ourselves. Did that count? So they saved loads of money by tapping church members to do all the work. I was gonna say. <laughs> so you know, I, we do have that going for us. They have do a you bunch remember of volunteers. those? Yeah. Do, do you remember those like offering services where they'd be like, "In today's offering, you know, they're just saying they're special. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, mm-hmm. in today's offering, offering is going to, after you've given your money, they decide to tell you this. It's going yeah. to the new roof. <laughs> yeah, we need a new roof. We need a new parking lot. Whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hopefully you've caught part one. You should have caught part one. I would say if you haven't. You got to stop this recording and get over to the Cheers to Leaving podcast because we've just done part one on their show, and this is now part two. We're continuing this discussion. We got into all kinds of subjects. We were talking about baptism. How many times? So you've both been baptized at least twice. I've been baptized three times, but Rachel, you might have beaten us all, actually. Yeah, I blacked out. I don't know. <laughs> Again, when you have baptisms once a week at a lake and you're Are you a serious? Child, once a week? Uh, how many converts I mean, I, did your church have? Not My God. Lot. How many people were, was, was your was pastor saving? It's the same Again, people every child, week. I was a child, so my uh, memory could be off. It's a bit blurred. It, it felt like, at least in the summertime, it was often. Like, I can just remember there was many instances we were, where we would go to the lake. And so, you know, if you want to jump in, you can. It's like, hey, who wants to get baptized, you know, type thing. Like, we'd usually go out there for one or two people. And huh. then the pastor would be like, anyone else? And I'd be like, okay. Yeah, no, we were, we were cheap. We just were like, okay, like once a quarter. And 
baby pool in the garage or like I said, like the old gas tank that got cut in half in the garage. Like that's, that's what mm-hmm. we were using. So we were, we were cheap on that. But the thing is the, the what's the theology behind it? Cause we were discussing this a little bit. Is it okay to be sprinkled? Is it okay to be baptized as a baby? Like in a Catholic? Gun. <laughs> yeah. So, cause that's a big deal. Cause I mentioned, I came out of the church of Christ denomination, which taught that, to get saved, you got baptized. That was the, they equated salvation and right. baptism. And they baptism would say it was in the baptistic tradition. So it was full of immersion adult baptism. They, yeah, if you were baptized so, as a baby, like as a Catholic, it didn't count, you know, yeah. so it, it can be a pretty big deal as, we were, if you even get into heaven. We were Southern Baptist. And so the belief was, um, there wasn't like an age necessarily, like as long as you could like make up your own mind and like think for yourself somewhat. So like, when I was Can like a nine-year-old thing for themselves. I don't know. I was like <laughs> five or six when I Too first young. got baptized. So no. I had no idea yeah. what was going on. My, I have like developed. asked Jesus into my peanut butter sandwich, you know, like that was the vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, but it was like full body submersion. Um, either pastor or the body of Christ had to baptize you. Um, it didn't necessarily mean you were saved, but it kind of solidified your ticket to heaven. So it was like, this is like, you need to have this for us to really be like, consider it you is to be important, serious. Like if you didn't get baptized, it was like, well, why aren't you getting baptized? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Mm. It was like, but almost that's... like you would want to proclaim to the world that you're a Christian, right? Like yeah. it's kind of what you need to the do. Public statement. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is a good question to throw at this point. We kind of hinted around this in, in, on your show, and that is this whole issue of religious trauma syndrome, because what triggered me to get baptized in the first place was after we, we had shown a thief in the night at our church in the mid-1970s, and I was terrified that I was going to get left behind in the rapture, and I wanted to get baptized so that that didn't happen, so I didn't, wouldn't go to hell, I wouldn't have to face the tribulation. Now, looking back on it as an adult, I would say that is absolutely a form of abuse. The indoctrination of children, telling them terrifying things like, because I can remember when I was five or so going to vacation Bible school at a, weirdly enough, at a neighbor's house down the street, not at a church, and they had flannel graphs and everything. And on the last day, they went into the whole thing about, you're going to go to hell, you're going to burn in the flames. I'm at five years old. Then that that's a form of abuse. My religious that's trauma like syndrome, I would say it started normal. there. That's messed yeah. up. It is messed up, but it's also like extremely normal for everyone in, as like that grew up evangelical. Like yeah. it's more freak it freaks me out more looking back on it than it like did at the time. Like, you yeah. know, like it was just it's very normalized. normal conversation that you would have with your parents or the church or whatever. And now looking back, I'm like, why would you tell a child that? What the fuck? I think it's the I, truth. That's I what didn't they would really say. have like a fear of hell because I kind of just assumed I wasn't going, mm-hmm. even though I was like well, a bare I mean, minimum I Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a bare minimum Christian, but like, yeah. I was like, oh, like my family is Christian and I have all the right doctrine and I got baptized and like, yeah, yeah I, I believe this. Did. So yeah, I'm good. Coat, like, coattail Christians. Yeah, I didn't really want to like think about it too hard because if I thought about it too hard, I did get anxiety. But like, I don't remember feeling like super terrified of hell. I, there was like a couple conversations I had with my mom as a really little girl where I was like, "Well, if Grandma's not a Christian, does that mean Grandma's going to hell?" And my mom's like, mm-hmm. "Yeah, unfortunately, that was yes, that is what that yeah. means. She's going to be burning in hell." Well, and that's yep. the thing is you've got all this trauma from being indoctrinated as a kid. Now, what you mentioned, uh, Molly, that you had some of the Bill Gothard Institute and Basic Life Principle stuff. That's what I was raised with. 
back then it was called Institute and Basic Youth Conflicts. What was your experience, Rachel? Were you were you were your parents into any of that stuff, the Gothard cult stuff? Um, yeah. So my so as I was watching Shiny Happy People, um, I was like, a lot of this is so familiar, but it wasn't uh, presented me like to me in the way that. It was almost like second or third hand, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it had filtered like, um, in. I think a it, lot of his stuff just filtered into evangelicalism. Yeah, but I didn't necessarily realize that it was the Pearls or it was Bill Gothard. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. realize that's where it stemmed from, but so much of it was very familiar to me. And I can't even think of the name right now, but I think it was one of the last uh, episodes. I think it was the fourth episode where there were certain curriculums that. Oh, ATI? I don't know. Well, you weren't homeschooled, were you? Yes, I was. Oh, we right. used hold on. We used Bob Jones. Oh, BJU Press. I yes, did but then we also Bob used Jones. we used um, a Becca, yeah, which yeah. was also a big one amongst Christians. And then but there was, was there was another one. Sunlight was, was our curriculum, which oh, was like a yeah. Christian based. S O N. And it was a white supremacist, like American nationalism. Oh, like, nice. Th- like when I look back at some of the books we read, I was like, holy shit. This is really messed we up. Learning? What? <laughs> um, but like we didn't know okay so my dad was so anti bill gothard because we were from illinois and so he was very familiar with that he hated jerry falwell he hated all those guys he was like i'm a liberal christian you know like um so he would like vote democrat and all of this but they did use michael and debbie pearl's parenting and marriage books Mm -hmm. quite heavily in the way that they raised us and a lot of the iblp parenting style stuff was very deep in our house church like a lot of the people in our house church were quiverful families Mm -hmm. and had come from those super fundamentalist churches and so they saw as like our house church was kind of cutting edge and like little bit more liberal at the time right but like all of the same parenting methodologies were being used a lot of the same ways that women were treated and expected to behave like that was all very normalized and it was all based in like bill gothard and um the pearls and like american fun like christian fundamentalism like it's it's all the same shit yeah, See, Dobson, I would equate yeah. Dobson right in there because he he taught My parents corporal to punishment and spanking constantly. as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's all the same. Sh- it's all the books, same shit, which is yeah. like a mm-hmm. different name. And so it's funny. I brought it up to my dad recently because Shiny Happy People came out, and I was like, you know, I really, I think you should watch it. And I was like, you know, this is a lot of the parenting methodologies were very reminiscent of what we used at home. And that's where a lot of my religious trauma stems from is from the parenting methodologies that you guys had that were like steeped in this stuff. And, and he said something interesting. I think he has selective memory at this point. Cause he was like, Oh, well, of you know, course. we would try things that were suggested to us by our community. And then, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of it, we just realized just didn't fit our family. And so we would try different things. I'm like, that's not what my experience was. Yeah, hang on a minute. Maybe like after I was out of the house and you guys were like becoming more conscious of trauma yeah, like maybe and like your younger siblings. Right. So I think like my exactly. young but even then, like I remember times when my one of the youngest, she was like they did this weird spanking ritual um where she was lying a lot. Like lying was just like part of her freaking personality at that age. She was like seven. And so she just lied about everything. 
Um, because she knew if she told the truth, she'd get a spanking anyway. So the pearls suggested this thing where it's like every day at a certain time, you pick the time, but it has to be the same time every day. You are going to spank your child this many times. So it'd be like 10 spanks every day at 10 a.m. Like a preemptive spank? For seven days. While they were and and if they stop shit that you might do that day, what the right? hell? And if you lied again <laughs> during this process, if you lied again, you'd have to start the, the ten start the ten days over. And so oh, she would boy. like it was like thirty days of spanking every day. God. And at one point, she'd like her job was to like bring my mom the rod and be like, "It's time for my spanking." Like. Yeah, that shit is weird. Trauma it's right so there. Yeah. weird, dude. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, in eighth grade being like, this is normal. Like, no, exactly. yeah, I decorated my uh, rod. Mm. You decorated so, it. Mm-hmm. You decorated it? Yeah. Okay, that is messed up. Be like, yep. here, we decorate and the, the weapon that we're going to use And my mom thought it was the most adorable you. thing ever. Oh, my God. She would tell people about it. Did she also Not tell people when on. she'd break the rod on your butt? Because I definitely, it was like a funny family story. Of she like, did. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I've yeah. broken oh. four Within rods circles, on Molly. Like, wow, She's that I bad. so hard that, or it just wore out. It's time for new spanking spoon. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like, looking back on it, it's like, this was weird, y'all. What? <laughs> Why would you say that? Here's it's the, so here's the spoon that my mom beats me with. I decorated it. And I think I even titled it Rachel's Spanking Spoon. Rachel, <laughs> My no. God. No, please say it isn't true. <laughs> Rachel, it is this is so bad. Have you talked to your therapist so about the Spanking Spoon yet? <laughs> I haven't, actually. You might want to bring that one up. A whole new memory. I, think, I think a lot of these things are like suppressed, and then we get on the podcast yep. or we do they come out. And we it's start true. Talking, like, and I'm like, what huh, the hell? I remember that. <laughs> I yeah. recently had a sibling reach out to me because they watch shiny, happy people. Mm-hmm. And I was, so, you know, we had a big family, seven kids. I was the middle child and I was, I struggled the most, um, probably the most on the autism spectrum, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like very neurodivergent just would have like meltdowns all the time. Um, and so I got spanked a lot because, you know, you want to suppress the emotion. So if they're, sh- the kid is showing emotion, you need to spank that out of them. Um, And so I received the majority of the punishment, um, a a big majority of it. And my older sister reached out to me when Shiny Happy People came out. And she goes, you know, there were certain parts of this show that were really triggering to me. And she goes, and it wasn't even just my trauma that I was feeling it. It was yours. Mm -hmm. And she reminded me of this time when I was really young. And like this memory is like deeply engraved in me. Like this is not something I've suppressed. I'm like, yeah, that happened. I'm never forgetting that. You know, I was really little. I was like four four or five, just a really tiny little kid. And I was having a meltdown. And um, it turned into my dad taking me into the basement for like three hours and periodically like on the hour, like spanking me a certain number of times until I yeah. showed no emotion. And I remember just like hiding like too. behind a bookcase. And like, I was like sobbing uncontrollably. Like my nervous system As was you so do. unregulated yeah. that like he thought it would be a smart idea to take a picture of me so that I could see my face when I was crying. Oh, so I could be like shamed. A weird form of like, Good it God. was like shame punishment to try to get me to stop crying. Like, yeah, that's going to help your baby regulate. I'm a baby, like yeah. five years old. And I'm like, I yeah. remember standing behind the bookcase and just, <gasps> and like looking out and my dad turning around with the camera and like whipping around in his chair with the camera and be like, I'm going to take a picture of you if you come out. And I was down there for God. the whole day, like, like 
well, the whole like half of the day. And, you know, and then when I went upstairs, finally, I'd like finally gained enough self-control. Um, went upstairs and I had to like apologize to my mom and apologize to my grandma Mm -hmm. and apologize to all my siblings. And my older sister reminded me of this and she goes, I remember dad taking you down there and I remember hearing you screaming and crying and all of the spanking. And she was like, I remember wanting to stop it and not knowing Mm -hmm. how. And I was like, Beth, this isn't yours to hold. I was like, you were in it as much as I was. Had you stood up for me, had you tried to save me, had you tried to do anything, you would have been subject subjected to far worse than what mm-hmm. I was undergoing. You know, yes, what I was going through was horrible. Um, but you would have been punished much more harshly had you tried to step in. And I, so we all kind of had like a little bit of like Stockholm syndrome and a little bit of like, everyone stay in their lane, everyone mind their business, don't, you know, step in. And, and, and I knew that at a young age, like my siblings aren't going to be able to save me and I'm not going to expect them to, if that makes sense. That's seriously messed up. That's just right. straight abuse, isn't it? On every possible level, yeah. physical, emotional, I would say spiritual too. For That's sure. one thing. Yeah. As I was writing my book, I went through a lot of that because we talk about the Gothard stuff. My parents raised us according to Bill Gothard's treat, you know, uh, teachings and we were spanked sometimes two, three, four times a day, you know, and it was to break our wills. That was what they taught, wasn't it? They said yeah. you had to, and when the child starts to cry, that's when you know that he or she, their will has been broken. Yep. And that's when the tears start to flow. And I can remember sitting in my room here and my sister Beth getting spanked and knowing I was next, you know, and it's oh, that man. same thing. Yeah, the there was nothing I could do to stuff. stop it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in dread and anxiety waiting because I know it's my turn and I can hear her just down the hall sobbing, crying, getting hit, you know, spanked on the butt. So that's another trauma on top of the abuse as well, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. you always have to remember too, like corporal punishment has been like so normalized for years and years and years. And it's not just inside of religion. Yes. Religion like really pushed it even further, but um, like, gosh, like even like Little House on the Prairie, like there's like a chapter Mm -hmm. where Laura gets a spanking and like, it's just, but it only happened maybe twice in her whole lifetime. Right. And she really did something bad to warrant it. And like, even, um, my friends, when I tell them about this stuff, they're like, yeah, I remember being whooped like once or twice when I was a kid and that I did something real bad to deserve it. And it, right. you know, we were hundreds, thousands. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, oh like yeah. One or two. It was like regular. It was like a regular part of our day was one of us was going to get our ass whooped and it was going to be intense. And yeah, like, I don't know. It's just different yeah. when it's like so... Well, that was the go-to punishment. There, like, really wasn't anything... There wasn't anything else. Anything else. I Mm -hmm. I think that there maybe... I don't know. I feel like when the younger you were till... I don't know, maybe up until you were close to being a teen, that was, like, just the point where they had to shape you and train them up in the way that they should go. And so I think that's why spankings were so like implemented during that time. But I remember, I mean, I, I don't even know how many I got like so many. Oh yeah. Thousands. Yeah. Again, like normal average people are like, yeah, maybe I've had like one my whole life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh wow. So you're probably okay now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It was was ritualized every day for 10 days. till I stopped lying. And if I lied in the middle of it, it'd be, uh, we'd start the 10 day cycle. Start it over. Right. And that's almost psychological. I feel like it is like, I mean, obviously physical, it, 
you know, obviously, but like, I feel like when, like, say you mess up, right. As a child, you often do to just restart that. And then having this dreaded fear of doing anything, because if you do, it's just going to keep going and keep happening. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, like I was talking about when we did our, our other episode on your show, where I'm writing my book, as I'm reliving these memories, I, I was plugging in examples of cult psychology, cult practices and tactics that I lived through. And one of the things I kept coming up with was uh, Dr. Stephen Hassan's bite model. I'm sure you're familiar with that. You know, have you heard of the bite model of cults? Can you explain it? So what it is, it's an acronym. It stands for B-I-T-E, Behavior Control, Information Control, Thought Control, and Emotional Control. Yes, I have. And yeah. It's, yeah, it's a really effective model to explain how cults and cult leaders control and manipulate their followers. So we've identified several, haven't we? We've talked about behavior control. You had to control your behavior, and it was controlled for us by spankings and corporal punishment and other forms of punishment. We also had information control whereby we had no television. We had no radio in the house. We were shielded from the world. We couldn't watch TV and all that. We had to control our thoughts because you could sin against God with a, with a bad thought. And then, of course, we had to control our emotions, right. which, I mean, Molly, you were descri- describing being punished for an entire day to get your emotions, quote, under control. All those things hit all four markers of that model, I would say. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So what was the form of punishment your parents chose to use? This is like for both of you after you were like past the spanking point. My parents did like intense grounding and isolation. So it was like in, instead of spankings, I'm now getting like frequently grounded for like weeks on end where I cannot leave my room other than to use the bathroom and do my chores. Like, and because I was homeschooled, it was like, right. You know, CPS isn't going to come in and be like, yeah, your kid has like been isolated to a room. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't grounded. There was a lot of stuff that went down where when I was about 10, 11, my older sister, Valerie got pregnant when she was 17, 18, she was forced to give the baby up for adoption. That was hugely traumatic. And That's after so all that kind of went down, my parents, they, they relaxed a little bit in the sense, I think they were just burned out because there was six of us kids and my sister mm. Beth and I were the two youngest. I was the youngest of all of them and she was just oh. a little bit older than me. So yeah, they were we, tired. Yeah, they were just tired of all the you know spankings and, and battles and everything that they'd had with all my other sisters. You know, so we got accused when my older sisters, they looked back and they said, you guys were spoiled. You were absolutely spoiled. And I'm like, no, I think our parents were just burned out, you know. I say that to my youngest. And that was all that kind of thing. (laughs) My youngest sister, like, got away scot-free. She didn't get beat to Mm -hmm. a pulp. I think my dad spanked her one time. I think my mom spanked her maybe twice her whole life. Like, she just got away with everything. Um, The youngest, you know, like. The baby of the family. Yeah. By the time, like, by the time they were, like, old enough to, like, talk about stuff like religious trauma, I mean, they still identify as a Christian. So I'm like, okay, you obviously didn't have the most traumatizing experience ever. Like, you got to go to high school. You weren't being homeschooled on a Christian Mm -hmm. curriculum. Like, yeah, spanked and (laughs) yeah, spanked and beaten. You had a good relationship with our father. Like, (laughs) what? We'll be right back in just a few minutes in the second half of this chat with Rachel and Molly from the Church Leaving Podcast. If you haven't figured this out by now, this is part two. You can catch part one of our great conversation that we had over on their platform. 
I would highly recommend that you listen to that first before you listen to this one, although this is right in the middle now. So if you listen this far, you might as well keep going, then head over to Cheers to Leaving and go ahead and catch part one. Now, speaking of Rachel and Molly, we've just had, as this episode drops on the 24th of September, they were our guests on our monthly MindShift Zoom call. We've just started these back up in the month of September, and I've absolutely enjoyed meeting these two lovely ladies, these ex-evangelicals. We obviously have a lot in common sharing our backstories growing up in sort of fundamentalist Christianity, religious trauma syndrome, rapture anxiety, being baptized multiple times and more. You can still catch that conversation, though, if you go to patreon.com forward slash mindship podcast, the recording of that call will be posted up on Patreon so you can still catch that. And in fact, these are rewards that you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show. You can drop in every month to our MindShift Zoom calls. We hold them usually around about the third Sunday of the month. In fact, we've got the month of October lined up already. I've got David Morris, who I just had a conversation with the other day. He is a book publisher out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. He used to work for Zondervan. That episode's going to be dropping soon. So he's agreed to come and be our guest in the month of October. And I'm working on one more for the month of November before we take our break for the rest of the year. So these are fantastic benefits to being a Patreon supporter of the show. Then we've got a couple of really good interviews lined up just to let you know what's in the pipeline. I've got a couple of really good friends of mine, a couple of ex-pastors just like me. We've got a conversation with Tim Sledge, who, of course, wrote the book Goodbye Jesus, as well as numerous other books on atheism and agnosticism. We're going to be talking about his book, Four Disturbing Questions with One Simple Answer, Breaking the Spell of Christian Belief. That is a fantastic book that I would highly recommend. We're going to be getting into that. Then I've also got another call lined up, or I will be lining it up, with another good friend of mine, David Hayward, the Naked Pastor. We need to catch up with these guys. It's been a long time since I've talked to both David and Tim. And then I've also got a recording schedule with Karen Norris. She is a former evangelical missionary in Japan, growing up there in fundamentalist evangelical Christianity. She's written a book called Holy Heathen. I'm really looking forward to talking to her. Then I'm working on another interview with Dr. Laura Anderson. I've had her on the show before, so I'm really looking forward to catching up with Laura again. She's just come out with a book called When Religion Hurts You. So again, talking about religious trauma syndrome, the damage that evangelicalism can cause. And then speaking of damage that is caused by evangelicalism, specifically the Christian right, I've got an interview lined up with my good friend Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch. I haven't talked to him in a long time, so I'm really interested to see what work Peter has done. Again, he's doing a lot of work on Right Wing Watch's website about stuff that the Christian right, the fundamentalist Christians involved in American politics, what they're doing. So we'll have a catch up with Peter Montgomery. So again, some absolutely fantastic episodes coming up. Got some really good interviews lined up. Really looking forward to talking to all these great people. So let's get on back into the second half of our chat with Rachel and Molly as we conclude part two of our crossover episode, Mindship Podcast, and cheers to leaving. Mine um, did like, like, um, like sitting on the wall or holding positions for a long period of time until I was like shaking or that's crying horrible. or something. My you know God, I mean? that's horrifying. That's what they do in the yeah, army. Yeah, so I'd like have like... to sit on the wall until like I just literally couldn't sit there anymore. And since my will was strong, yep. <laughs> I would you weren't broken. stay on that wall a long time. You have some strong ass like thighs. The dead, bug, <laughs> the dead bug where you just have to lay on the fucking floor with your arms and legs up in the air. It's so Planking. weird to talk about. It's we really had weird. To, mm-hmm. One time me and my little Almost sister like were exercises. fighting and my dad was like, 
you're going to sit in that tile square and you're going to sit in that tile square. And if I see your toes or fingers come out of the tile square, you're getting a spanking. And we just like sat there huddled in a ball for like an hour. (laughs) That's kind of funny punishment. That's like less traumatizing punishment. That was just like funny and annoying. Yeah, it's more creative. I don't know what it does to your brain, but like... It's just like, okay. (laughs) It is weird. It's really strange. But you're right. You have to tailor your punishments for the child's sort of psychology and behavior patterns because we've got two girls and they were so different. They are so different. One's very strong-willed. The other's quite... She was more passive as a child. So Mm -hmm. we found out... We stopped spanking them when they were probably five or six. We didn't... We just didn't believe it, probably because of my experience as a kid. We weren't spanking them five, six times well, a day. Well, you probably saw it made no improvement either on their behavior. Like Yes, and that's the thing. I'm reflecting on that, saying if my parents were spanking us thousands of times and we still were, quote, naughty, wouldn't you as a parent say, wait a minute, this isn't this working. This isn't working. This strategy mm-hmm. isn't friggin' working. Mm-hmm. So me and my ex-wife at the time, well, we were married years ago when we raised our kids in the States, you know, we, we would send them to their room and do things like that, make them sit on the naughty step and things, you know, it wasn't spanking them. And our oldest daughter, she hated it because she's a very social person, you know, so like for her to be sent to her to room me. was like the she's worst like, no. punishment. My youngest daughter, she's very much like me. She likes being alone. So she, she, she never saw it as a punishment. You know, she's yeah. like, I get to go play with my toys for an hour. Great. This is, I'll, this is great. I'll be honest. When I was a teenager and I was getting grounded a lot, um, I didn't mind it that much because it meant I didn't have to be around my siblings. I didn't have to sit at the dinner table where my dad drilled me with questions. I didn't have to go to family worship every morning. But the thing that made me mad was I couldn't go to ballet class and like have my extracurricular like outside of the house. Mm-hmm. So my one outlet outside of the house I couldn't do. But I'm really introverted myself. And so I would just like do all my schoolwork and then just like read fiction for hours. And like I loved that. I like when the pandemic came along, I was like, oh, this is lockdown. I've been doing this since I was a kid. Like, (laughs) this ain't a big deal, you know? But like, I wonder if my introversion was learned introversion because I'm a very like sociable, bubbly person for the most part. Very Like I like to make conversation, like to get to know people. Um, But I do have this level of an introversion. Like if I'm going through something emotionally difficult, I isolate myself. And I wonder if that's a result of the way that I was punished and taught to regulate was you're behaving very badly. You know, obviously me behaving badly was me having a need that wasn't being met, right? If you're like yeah, you're talking about it on a nervous too. system basis. Yeah, I'm acting out, you know, rebelling against their religion and stuff. Um, but like now as an adult, when I'm going through something difficult, it's like the, my immediate response is I need to be by myself. I need to isolate. I don't want to be around anybody. I don't want to do anything. Like I ground myself almost like I, I give mm-hmm. myself a, a, a disciplinary action when I'm yeah. in my room you on my bed for out. days. Yeah. And like, I really wonder if that's learned, like, would I regulate differently in the world if I had been taught emotional regulation skills like that gentle parenting for instance show or if I had been just validated in the way I felt maybe I'd be more willing to talk to friends when I'm going through something you know it's true I I think that's right I I do the same kinds of things you know if there's if there's a big gathering of people I'm I'm it's weird because I'm I'll have no problem talking to a stranger in a store or in a pub or something like that but when it's a big group I get very intimidated I'm but I'm a teacher by trade it's different when I stand up in front of my learners I don't, I don't have that problem. I, I feel very confident teaching a class 
So it's it's strange, isn't it? But I, I'll tend to just go upstairs and get on my iPad or something like that or work on my computer. Whereas my girlfriend, she loves that. She loves big gatherings and big parties. And she that's that's kind of her thing, you know. So I have to be careful to – I can't just take off and disappear every time there's a gathering. So, yeah, I, I think that, that does go back to some of that kind of stuff, doesn't it? You know, do you think that maybe you feel that way because in your past life when you were a Christian – your association with big gatherings was Christian gatherings in which there'd be mm. uncomfortable conversations. There'd be accountability. There'd be points mm. where you had to share the wrongdoings you have done. And like, you'd be put on the spot and then a bunch yeah. of people would zone in on you and be like, ah, you're not doing this right. And you're not doing this right. And this is what you should be doing. Like for me, my social anxiety with big groups, like I can't, I'm into like different, like spirituality stuff and there's certain circles I'm now like feeling more comfortable going to but certain like gatherings like that in which everyone's sitting in a circle and sharing gives me the highest anxiety because it Mm -hmm. takes me back to house church days and the level of pressure that was put on me in those environments so I'm curious if like you feel that way about gatherings because it's reminiscent of what other gatherings you went to when you were younger and how uncomfortable those were for you emotionally. And so now as an adult, you just like mm-hmm. go into like avoidance, like your nervous yep. system is like, Nope, we're not going to even deal with this. Not this, doing this it. is danger. Yeah, we're stay away. Yeah. We're going to avoid, we're going to run away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can remember those, com- those conversations being in accountability groups and all Ugh. that going around the table, you know, talking about how you failed that week and <laughs> you didn't yet, yeah, whatever it was you weren't supposed to be doing. How many times you read your Bible or you didn't? How many times you prayed that week? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so, uh, yeah, I was part of pastoral accountability groups. I was part of lay people accountability groups. Yeah, so I, I can definitely, I've never thought of that, but that's a really good point that those kind of gatherings. Well, and then this is the other question. If you're an introverted person, we were talking a little bit on your show. What about this whole idea of sharing the gospel in air quotes? Is that a problem or was that a problem for you too when you were yeah. Christians? You had to force yourself out of your comfort zone? Well, like what I said on our early conversation, I avoided it. I think there was only one time where I like shared the gospel. <laughs> Other than that, like I, I avoided it like the plague. I'm super socially anxious um, when it comes to like scripted stuff, I guess. And it felt really scripted. It didn't feel authentic. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, yeah you I just force yourself to do it. Yeah, I wasn't a fan. Um, also, it's like this is my parents' job. It's not. I'm a kid. Like, why are <laughs> talk to my what? mom or dad? Right. I'm not the missionary. I'm just their child. Mm-hmm. What about um, you, Rachel? Did you have to do evangelism when you were a Christian? Yeah, I mean, we did things like backyard Bible club and uh, where we'd like witness to children, which is also gross now that I think about. It. I mean, I was a child <laughs> as well, a teenager, but we were like you know, we would go into rough neighborhoods or, you know, poor neighborhoods and then we would put on these shows and then, but I mean, I thought it was fun. I didn't really like the after part where there was a lot of pressure to convert children afterwards. Um, children are a lot easier to talk to than adults. Um, I felt pressure with my family because I love them and I didn't want them to go to hell, I guess. Um, so, and I also thought it was very valiant of me to stand up for my faith you know, Mm -hmm. as well. Like that gave me a high, I guess, as a young child as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also... Unapologetic for the gospel. mm -hmm, Yeah. You like feel good about yourself or like you're doing 
um, you know, the Lord's work, I guess. And, and then you can go and you can share it with people and they'll be like, oh my God, you're so good. Like, you're so great, you know? <laughs> Super Christian. Um, yeah. But I, I was an only child for most of my life. I had a stepsister that would come every other weekend. Um, so I, I do kind of attribute that to being introverted. I think I'm outgoing, but I, I think really my comfort zone is, is being alone. I do have extreme social anxiety. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I, I think the shitty part about that and then having evangelical parents is like, there was no one else to have the microscope on except mm-hmm. for me. So I think in, in some areas, people who did have more siblings, I kind of am jealous of a little bit because there was more like they had more to keep track of versus just like you and this constant like eyes on you, I guess. It's true. Yeah. Family dynamics. I mean, I had, there was six of us, so it was a big family. You Mm. could get lost in the shuffle, I think for sure. Cause I was the youngest child and yet I was the only boy. So I was in a weird place because they never really treated me like the baby of the family. My sister Beth, who's just above me, she's got more of the classic baby symptoms, you know, of a of a typical oh, baby of the family. And I think they treated her that way because she was the final girl, and I was the only boy. So in a way, I was the firstborn son. So it's right. a really weird thing. That, but yeah, you can pressure, become the invisible child or whatever. The pressure mm-hmm. of boys in Christian families that are majority girls, like my brother is the only boy among seven and he's a middle mm. child too. So he's like four years older than me. And like, I just remember the way my dad and mom would talk about him. Michael, our only son, our one and only, the one, <laughs> our the only, only begotten, one. The the only begotten son, the heir, He'll the, continue the namesake. Legacy. Like yep. already <laughs> culture. Carry on the legacy. Right. Already culture has put so much pressure on like the firstborn son of any family but like okay firstborn son and we're christian oh my gosh like yeah, the level of lead. pressure <laughs> the yeah. level of pressure he probably felt um and also like this big like you must protect your sisters at all costs mm-hmm. like Very you patriarchal know? system isn't it yeah yeah so he definitely has a lot of that but like okay well, so you being the only boy and seeing your sisters go through everything they went through did you were you treated differently than they were yeah, I definitely was, like you said, kind of that that talk of being the quote chosen one or the one who's going to carry on the legacy of the family, blah blah blah, you know. And I would say going back to the Gothard stuff, you know, obviously it was a very patriarchal system, and so I, that's my parents patterned their marriage and their family rearing after that sort of principle. So the girls obviously had to do a lot more of the housework, had to do a lot more of the emotional labor, had to, um, were they, did you guys do buddy systems where like your older sisters were your parents essentially? Yeah, I think so. Cause there was such an age gap between my two oldest sisters. And by the time they got down to the last couple of Beth and I, that they were kind of surrogate mothers in a way. You know, I used to say to my sisters, I only have one mother. You can't tell me what to do. You know, they, they would boss me around and all that. Mm-hmm. But yet, like you said, I was expected to do all the sort of, quote, manly chores. I had to mow the lawn. I had to chop the wood. I had to do all those kind of things. Whereas my sisters did the housework, you know. So we did some of that, obviously, because there were so many of us. But, yeah, I think I was treated differently in that regard for sure. What about dating? Were you treated differently when it came to dating? Well, again, I think it was by the time you were dating, though, were your sisters? Yeah, things were different then because my parents had kind of relaxed a bit because they were so burned out. I think of all the battles they 
fought. You or know? just like so the conversation the- around purity. Like what was that? Oh, like being yeah. a boy and watching your older sisters go through this kind of socialization around p- their sexuality and oh, how it was they huge. Yeah, so like what yeah, was that, what was that like? It was definitely part of the the modesty culture, the Gothard stuff. Because I remember my sister, well, there's a couple things I can really remember. My oldest sister, when she was in Bible college, she lost her virginity and she had gone to Bible college with the express aim of finding a good Christian godly man to marry who was going to become a pastor. She was going to be a pastor's wife. It was the dream. She lost her virginity to this guy and she was devastated. And I remember she came home and said, that's it. You know, I've I've ruined the package. I'm I've I've soiled forever. Oh and she God. actually dropped out of Bible college, saying that oh she God. said that I was on God's plan A for my life, and now there is no plan B, C, D. I don't even know what I'm going to do. You know, so she was that devastated oh by losing God. her virginity that she was convinced that she'd ruined everything. I have a sibling. I'm not going to say so which sibling, up. but I have a sibling who lost their virginity in college and came back and was like in church on their knees crying with their head <laughs> in their hands wailing begging for god's forgiveness and you just see my parents and all the deacons surrounding them like praying for their salvation mm-hmm. because they had sex a yep. consenting How sex horrible. yeah it was just thing i want to do is a sin like watching that <laughs> right. being being a young person i remember writing in my diary so and so lost their virginity in college and i just i'm praying for them that they're you know gonna be able to find jesus again and find their purity again and blah 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 and then at the very end i'm like but like is it really that big of a deal question mark <laughs> no like like i'm like regurgitating everything i need to say in the end of the brain dump i'm like but wait a minute like is it that big of a deal so dumb yeah um so we talked about like being in big families and being the only boy and watching your siblings like go through like this really strange socialization around purity and everything um i don't remember where i was going with this okay I'm just going to like make something up here. (laughs) Dive in there. How did you feel about purity culture by the time you were dating? And like, did any of that follow you? Your parents were more relaxed when it came to dating by the time you were, like you had said, but, but what, what about that indoctrination? Well, yeah, it runs very deep, doesn't it? I, I was definitely raised in the purity culture, modesty culture. And it was that whole thing about the, the women are sort of the seductresses, that was the Gothard teaching, wasn't it? The woman would set an eye trap. I remember going through when I watched Shiny Happy People just a few about a month ago, and I, I was reminded, triggered, I guess you could say, by all the stuff they were talking about. You know, it's like, oh yeah. my God, that's what I was raised with. You know, because we could go out and have dates and things, but my mom and dad would would very seriously say, look, you know, you got to be really careful. You know, you don't want to slip up and have sex. And then when I did lose my virginity, I wasn't as devastated, but I really was not happy that I had made a big mistake. I was probably 20, 21 around in there. So I I made it for quite a while, but I I swore I'd never make it, make another mistake like that again. And, you know, try to repent and all that. I was 19. How old were you, Rachel? (laughs) Um, Mm. You got to think about that one. I do. I don't know. I I I started doing sexual things before I lost my virginity. Uh, me so that's too. Why Seven, I'm trying right. to think. I'd say seventeen. I started doing sexual things, but like seventeen. We yeah. waited two years to have sex. Same guy. 
waited That's two pretty years. Long. I was probably yeah, well, we're both 18. virgins. It's yeah. you've got your whole life to wait if you're still a virgin. <laughs> once right. you're not a virgin, though. Game once over. you're yeah oh, no once you're not a virgin odd. and you're out you're like, dating well. you're like oh yeah we're fucking on the first night <laughs> yeah that's it we're straight in yeah well that's the the interesting thing like when I got divorced I got divorced a few years ago then met my girlfriend we've been together a couple years now you know and it's it's that's been a complete revelation the whole sexual piece around our relationship. We're not married. We're quote living in sin. I'm yeah, sitting in her mm-hmm. bedroom right now recording oh my this podcast. Gosh, you heathen. You know? Scandalous. But going to I was hell obviously, for yeah, sure. I'm going to hell. That's why I tell her all the time. You're you're dragging me to hell for sure. <laughs> this is but you know, fault. blame the woman. <laughs> I never thought that would be an issue after I got divorced, but it was a big thing to work through the feeling mm-hmm. of, oh, you can have sex without feeling the shame and the guilt and all the pieces that used to go with it when we were evangelicals. And right. that's been, that's been a huge part of my reconstruction process is getting divorced and then finding someone else and then having a normal relationship that normal people have, you know, and that's, Did, I've had to rethink the whole thing. My biggest, Did you and your, sorry, go ahead, Rachel. Okay. Did you and your ex-wife now follow like the, was she, was she a Christian, and did you guys follow that whole like purity culture thing? No, when we, we had sex before we got married, and we felt really bad about that. We were but married. You were for, still in the same like. Oh yeah, mindset. we were both raised in Christian okay. schools, Christian homes, and so you, you know. felt guilty about having sex before that, and yep. then you we thought we'd ruined the package and mm-hmm. blah blah blah. But we were married for over thirty years. I mean, it was a long, long Shit. time. Luckily yeah. for us, we both sort of deconstructed around the same time frame. So our split up had nothing to do with like her staying a Christian and me becoming an ex evangelical. It was just kinda of, it had run its course basically. But yeah. the the religious component did play a huge part in our eventual marriage collapsing. Mm because of all the years I spent in Bible college and seminary and ignoring my family, being a pastor and a Bible college teacher took a lot of time away from our marriage and family, you know, so it did have a huge effect on the ultimate breakdown of my marriage, I would say. Yeah. Which it really does. I'm sure is a lot to unpack because on top of your own deconstruction, because there's your own personal, like, you know, dealings with that, but then to also realize this has affected your family and your marriage and possibly, you know, ruined that is probably just more layers of, you know. Oh, yeah. More layers of trauma. Through. Yeah, more layers of trauma for sure. It's true. Deconstructing is hard too, even in a relationship, even if you both are deconstructing at the same time or even if – because your ideas change, who you are changes. You know, all of these things that you're just kind of going through that were a part of you for so long, I think it's just hard. Oh, yeah. I'm it so because- glad and grateful that I am not married while I'm going through this process. <laughs> Lucky you. Like, yes, I am so happy um, not, not doing that. I think for me it was like the biggest uh, point when it came to unlearning stuff I had been taught and had been so deeply ingrained in me was um, the like the relationship ladder thing that they teach you about like like you know in purity culture and when it comes to courtship and dating it's like this is the way it should go you should only date someone you think you can marry and mm-hmm. then when you start dating the end goal is marriage and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. if he hasn't proposed within two years like mm, red flag and like this yeah. isn't something that's just taught to christian girls this is taught to 
all societal society yeah all mm-hmm. of society has this but for christian women it's like kind so of worse. the only thing you have to live for it's like if you do not get married and start having children you have failed as a christian woman you're not yeah. really serving god in the way that you've been built mm-hmm. to serve god and it's quite problematic and so you know, you see a lot of young women rushing to the altar, pressuring their partners to get married. They're marrying the first guy they ever dated. They don't really know this guy well. He, they are still babies, like literally 19, 18 years old, you know, get married so young. Yeah, just kids. Um, yeah. And so I'm really, I'm really grateful that the relationship I was in that was like the, okay, we probably should get married. Cause I was still like, I was no longer a Christian having sex out of wedlock, but still under this, like, if we're dating, that means we should get married. Like you're committed. You're, yeah. I'm committed to you. Like why else would we not like, we wouldn't date if I didn't want to marry you. You know, it was like Where that mentality. Point? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really glad that ended and I've been able to like, just date to like learn about relationships and learn about myself more and learn about this person that I'm attracted to. And like not feeling like this weird pressure of like, okay, like when are you going to propose? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. are, are you a viable husband? Like, <laughs> Are you a good godly it, man? I was thinking about it the other day and I almost feel like the ideal time to get married would be like mid to late 30s yes. or early 40s. You miss if there wasn't mm-hmm. the factor of women not being able to have kids, right? If you want to have freeze kids. your eggs. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's like adopt. But or adopt. Yeah. But I was thinking about it just with all the changes you go through from your 20s and your 30s. It almost seems like you really come into yourself and who you are and know your needs and all this stuff. I feel like closer to 40. So almost makes sense. And you've gotten all your yayas out of the way mm-hmm. that it's like, I don't know. I was just thinking about it. I agree. I was like, man, when is a good time to get married? Cause I don't mid-30s. feel like it's twenties or thirties. It's it's no, your, it's, it's your mid, mid really to late thirties. I think. Um, yeah. Or at least at a point I, I, where like you've worked through a tremendous amount of your own trauma. You've got, mm-hmm. you know, you've done a lot of the life goals you've had for yourself. You've had lots of experiences. You know yourself you deeply. You really know what you want. Yeah. You, you really know. know what you want. And like, I think like my goal now, cause I'm at the point where like pretty much everyone is on their first marriage. I'm like waiting for the second marriage. marriage. Like, that, yeah. so I'm going to like, I'm skipping. The I know first someone marriage. my age who's already on their second marriage. Right. Yep, right. So. No, I do too. So I'm like, I'm skipping the first marriage. I'm just going to go right into my second marriage. If I get married, like it'll be like yeah. in my thirties or forties. And I'm, yeah. I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. It's true. I feel like, you know, like I was saying with my girlfriend, we're in our mid fifties, you know, so it's so different oh, yeah. than when I was in my early twenties and pushing to get married. Oh yeah, way so better. There's like no pressure. Because we've got my girls are grown and gone. They live in different parts of the country. She's got one son that lives with her. She got a couple kids, you know, but they're adults. And Love it that. is so so different cuz we we feel like we become who we're supposed to be are. We who we're supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, the authentic authentic selves, you know. So it's a completely different game. Well, I was just going to say, we're running out of time. I hate to say this because we are actually hitting that magic 45-minute point. Um, I don't want this to end, but we have to end it because this is the end of part two. But what I was going to say to both of you, I was going to ask you, would you be interested in coming back in September? I do every month a MindShift podcast Zoom call, which is a closed group call. We have number of people that drop in just to chat for an hour on a Sunday night. I would love to carry this conversation on if you oh, cool. are up like for it. People I'll, just drop in? Yeah, well, it's the thing. Patreon supporters of the show. So we have oh, you know, 
a number of people that come in. We have an hour long discussion. We just talk about anything, everything. It's a great chance for them to meet people that I've had on the show. So I would love to have you back on. Maybe we can pick up this discussion have some other people weigh in on it too. So that would be great. Yeah, That would be super fun. Yeah. I'm interested. Okay. I'll throw you Um, some dates and we can figure it out. Yeah. Um, Before we end one last thing, just for our listeners, because I know we talked about your book a little bit in our episode, but like you're, are you writing, like, is your book coming out or you finished writing it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm finished writing it. I've been editing it incredibly hard. It's, it's insane how hard it is to edit a book over and over and over. I bet. It's about 99.9% done editing wise. I'm hoping to release it on Amazon. I've got some friends helping me publicize it and things like that to get it released sort of in the right categories and things like that. It's going to come out as a Kindle version first, and I'm going to work on getting it as a paperback, and then I want to do it as an Audible version as well. So, yeah, it's called Baptism Third Time's a Charm, and it's hopefully coming out the end of September. So How do people, we'll do you see. have a mailing list or a pre-order list or something like that people can join? Yeah, I'm working on that. I've gotten different advice. Some Someone said, don't do pre-sales. So I need to look into that and see if that's a better strategy. So I need to hit my kind of my marketing targets before I release the book. But yeah, that's okay. my goal. I've got another book that's a sequel to that that I'm working on as well. Kind of picks up where this one ends after my third baptism. So yeah, there's some stuff in the pipeline for sure, which I'm really excited about. That's, That's awesome. awesome. Looking the other thing I was going to gonna ask it. you, yeah, uh, what's your sort of social media handle? What's the best way to find you online? Um, you can find us pretty much on every uh, Instagram, TikTok, um, and Facebook, but everything's at Cheers to Leaving. Just mm-hmm. if right. you search that, you should Easiest be able to way find, to find us. You. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on Facebook. Yeah, we also have a link tree yeah. in our bio on Instagram as well, if, mm-hmm. if that would be easier. And our Facebook, it's not a page, it's a group. So um, yeah, it's, it's a Cheers group. to Leaving support group. So it's basically like our podcast conversation group, discussion group. Mm-hmm. And we have yeah. a link for that in all every single one of our show notes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have probably over 500 people in it. And, oh, that's great. Um, it's growing. It's, it's, it's helpful just to... Yeah, post your shit that other people understand yep. and 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 continue I mean continually you're working through this still. So Oh yeah, there's so nice much we could have talked resource. about. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get into more stuff, but maybe we can get into that in September if you if you're willing to come back on. So yeah. thank you so much Rachel and Molly. I've absolutely loved doing part 1 and part 2. I look forward to doing something more in the future. Looking forward yeah, to it. For thank us. you.